Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Biblical Studies, where we look at books about the Bible, from modern-day commentaries and art books to scholarly monographs and reference works. I'm Garrett Brown, the host of the channel. On today's program, I'm talking with Scott McKendrick and Kathleen Doyle. Hello and welcome to New Books in Biblical Studies, where we look at books about the Bible, from modern-day commentaries and art books to scholarly monographs and reference works. I'm Garrett Brown, the host of the channel. On today's program, I'm talking with Scott McKendrick and Kathleen Doyle about their new book, The Art of the Bible, Illuminated Manuscripts from the Medieval World, published by Thames and Hudson in November 2016. The book looks at 45 featured manuscripts from across the globe and through a thousand years of history, with such names as the Lindisfarne Gospels, the Queen Mary Psalter, the Canterbury Royal Bible, the Old English Hexateuch, the Wells Apocalypse, and the Paduan Bible Picture Book. With more than 300 illustrations, which have been meticulously color-corrected for this new publication, the authors shed light on some of the finest but least known paintings from the Middle Ages and on the development of art, literature, and civilization as we know it. Dr. Scott McKendrick is the head of Western Heritage Collections at the British Library. His publications include Codex Sinaiticus, New Perspective on the Ancient Biblical Manuscript, Illuminating the Renaissance, the Triumph of Flemish Manuscript Painting in Europe, and The Bible as Book, Transmissions of the Greek Text. Dr. Kathleen Doyle is the lead curator of Illuminated Manuscripts at the British Library. She was the co-creator with Dr. McKendrick of an Arts and Humanities Research Council-funded exhibition, Royal Manuscripts, The Genius of Illumination, and the lead investigator for the Royal Manuscripts follow-on project, editing with Dr. McKendrick the volume, 1,000 Years of Royal Books and Manuscripts. Together, they also edited Bible Manuscripts, 1400 Years of Scribes and Scripture, published by the British Library in 2007. Without further ado, I hope you enjoyed today's program. All right. Well, Scott McKendrick and Kathleen Doyle, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Well, right off the bat, I want to say what an absolutely gorgeous book uh, you've created uh, with uh, your publisher, Tame, Thames and Hudson. It's, it's absolutely uh, breathtaking. Uh, it's an oversized volume that is a little over uh, 10 inches by 12 and a half inches in trim and almost an inch and a half thick. And the paper, uh, the cover is a paper overboard with a gold foil stamping for the title and a cloth spine. And the paper is a rich matte stock. And it really is... Uh, since we're talking about the material production of manuscripts, it's so fitting that Thames and Hudson has done such a uh, 
excellent job of, of packaging this book and, um, you know, as befits the, the content. Well, that, that's very much what we, we aim to do. Um, that was part of the, the, the concept of the book from, from the outset. And so you, had, you played a, a, a role in its design from the beginning? We were very involved, and we, we have a fantastic designer, but we spent literally days with him and with our publisher in front of his um, computer screen adjusting every single image. And as you will have seen, it's very much an image-led book with um, at least four full-page images for each um, Bible entry, and many have more. And we worked with him to crop them and make them look as, well, as in some ways better than they do in the flesh. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we're, we're really, really pleased with what he was able to achieve. Yes, I think what's distinctive about the book is the full bleed images, where the images, you know, they run off the edges of the page, allowing you to get uh, very up close uh, to the images and, and to see the detail in a way that maybe you wouldn't even be able to see when you're looking at the original because you're highlighting something in particular. Well, bear in mind that many of these manuscripts are things that people are very unlikely to ever see, mm -hmm. um, you know, or maybe see once mm -hmm. in their life. Uh, the, it tends to, you know, they tend to be exhibited rarely uh, and seen by specialists. Uh, so this was a chance for people to really see into those books. Uh, we do have online presentations, uh, which helps. Uh, but what we also wanted to do in, in the book was to ensure that what people saw was faithful to yeah. the originals. So the other thing that we did, as well as uh, work closely on the design, was actually focus uh, work very closely together on the color quality. And several of the things, uh, for those who have seen them in reprodu reproduction before, may be a bit of a surprise, but actually we've corrected them two, three times against the original, and they're as close as they possibly could be. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, because you because in the uh, reproduction process, when it was photographed, and in the way that the book is printed itself, there can be distortion in the color. Indeed. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, absolutely. There are many of the things that are reproduced here, which have, uh, well, they, they look very different in... <laughs> Yes. In other books, shall we say? Yeah. And as you'll know, it's it's a real challenge because, of course, we're covering a huge um, range, both geographically and in terms of um, chronology of over a thousand years. And the way that parchment is produced varies enormously. So when in the book things are not, the parchment isn't the same color, it's because they're not in real life the same color. And I, I'm really pleased that we're we have been able to um, be so faithful to how they really look. Mm -hmm. So how many years has been, this been in the making? Oh, golly. <laughs> uh, four? Yeah, three, yeah, three or four, I yeah. think. Depends when the, when the clock starts ticking. A lot of weekends. <laughs> A lot of weekends. <laughs> A lot of weekends. Mm -hmm. Yes, excellent. Well, um, why don't we back up and tell us a little bit... Uh, about your background and how you started working on illuminated manuscripts and uh, what brought you to this project in particular. Okay. 
Scott is um, um, indicating that I should start. I had I have kind of a um, an unusual path to manuscripts, I guess. I started out as um, a corporate lawyer working on aircraft finance transactions. And um, about 15 years ago, thought that I wanted to do something that I was much more passionate about. So I went to the Courtauld Institute and got a um, doctorate in, in art history. And then I've been at the library here for about 12 years, working as a curator of illuminated manuscripts. So it's a great privilege uh, to work with such uh, an enormous, impressive collection, and what we wanted to do with this book was really to show the incredible breadth of the riches here and to make them available as widely as possible. Uh, so, it's difficult to follow that. Um, <laughs> my, my, my pathway was somewhat more conventional. Uh, uh -huh. I, um, I read classics at Oxford, uh, and uh, during that course, I became more and more interested in art history. So then, went to also went to the Courtauld uh, a little bit earlier, and then towards the end of my research there, I joined the library, and that was in 1986. So I've been here for 30 years, uh, at working at the British Library, and like Kathleen really appreciate the fact that uh, it, it is a great privilege to work mm. with such fantastic collections and actually fantastic colleagues as well. Uh, and, um, you know, this book is but one symptom of, of, of the collections, which are enormous, wide-ranging, and there are very few other collections that you could do such a book just based on. That, um, it's pretty remarkable, actually. Right, the British Library... Now, the British Library itself has a a huge manuscript collection and it's not just limited to uh bible manuscripts but the Absolutely. bible but bible yeah. manuscripts actually do constitute one of the large i mean compared to other places the british library has a large number of manuscripts and so that's out of which that's where this collection is drawn is that right yes so the british library has uh, arguably uh the most um i, I suppose the the deepest and widest uh, collection of, of manuscripts in the world, in, in, in any research library. Um, it's, it probably doesn't have the largest collection of Bibles. Uh, you'll not be surprised that that's probably the Vatican Library. Um, but I think in terms of the sort of geographic span and the chronological range of its materials, it is pretty preeminent. Uh, across not not just Bibles, but across the entirety of its, its manuscript collections, and that's one thing we very much wanted to reflect in the book. You will see an incredible range, and that's thanks in part to Scott's language skills, which he's mentioned. So we are able to include um, books from all over Europe, and um, really stretching the boundaries of what would be considered medieval in a traditional sense by starting with um, something from the 6th century and then going up really into the early modern period in areas where manuscript production continues. How, how would you say, um, just uh, in your experience, how, how much uh, carryover 
and uh, experience and sort of training um, is there between uh, these medieval manuscripts, their particular biblical texts and other non-biblical texts? Like how did you, does an art history background uh, really help to inform, because a lot of it is this material production, um, or do you start with, uh, you know, looking at it from um, a more uh, focused uh, on the religious or the, uh, you know, cultural significance? You know, how, how is it that they, those two things inform each other? The, we, we wanted to do both. Mm -hmm. But it is the, it's entitled The Art of the Bible. And so one of the, the one thing that these books have in common is that they had to be very uh, lavishly illustrated. Now, that's not all figurative imagery, but they are decorated and they are um, books of the Christian Bible. So in this book, we're not including uh, Bibles from um, other traditions. So that being said, we wanted very much to show the range of how this most fundamental text could be illustrated and indeed to, um, to explore the relationship between text and image. So, for example, we've included several illustrated copies of the Book of Revelation, called, usually called Apocalypse, mm -hmm. which um, are typically dominated the top half of the page is an image and the bottom half of the page will include not well the biblical text but summarized and together with a commentary telling you what it is and some of those are in latin and some of those are in a vernacular language of um, anglo-norman french so what we wanted to do was with both really we wanted to explore the importance of the biblical text and show give a sense of some of the varieties of the ways in which it was illustrated. Mm -hmm. Is there? Uh, a... I... Oh, go uh, ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, could I just just sort of uh, add to that that um, one of the key points here during this the entire manuscript period is that uh, complete Bibles uh, mm -hmm. are much rarer than in the printed era. So once you get to printing, obviously you start with Gutenberg's Bible, and thereafter it tends to be the default position that you include the, 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 the whole Old Testament and the New Testament. In the manuscript era, when you've got to painstakingly uh, write something by hand, you focus on what's most important. Uh, and so you copy the Gospels, you copy the mm. Psalms, and then you copy anything else that's really, really critical uh, for the need at the time, which might be uh, to do with the liturgy, it could mm. be to do with the services, it could be to do with education or instruction or whatever it is. But you only do what's necessary. And how much does... do? Is there an overlap between um, texts that are textually important versus ones that are artistically important. I mean, there's, there are a number of, um, Bibles, uh, where, you know, where we, uh, where it's the received text. And, um, that is what has gone into the tradition of determining, you know, between all the different variants and different manuscripts. Is there, are there clear, 
lines of or uh, genealogies of these manuscripts and do they overlap uh, the 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 ones that we count on for the Textus Receptus, you know, versus the ones that are illuminated or do the illuminated ones sort of have their own direction and uh, uh, de development, lines of development? Maybe I'll give a couple of examples first and Scott sure. will probably think of others. Um, I think both are true and some of these is because they're just so important and the, the first um, complete manuscript in the book is the Lindisfarne Gospel, this incredibly well-known um, and elaborated book made in Lindisfarne around 700. Um, about two centuries later, in the 10th century, uh, someone came along and wrote in a complete interlinear gloss in Old English above the Latin text, which is the earliest version of the Bible in of the New Testament in English. So in that case, both are true. It's an incredible work of art and incredibly important textually. Um, there's there are other examples, um, for example, uh, and, we, and we try to include many vernacular translations. Um, which are either the earliest or um, the most important in their genres. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the the earlier manuscripts tend to be the, yeah. the better texts. Uh, the, so you know, and, and in there, are, for example, the the Carolingian Bible, mm -hmm. uh, the Moutier Grandval Bible, is is, is a, a part of a group of manuscripts that attempt to refresh the uh, translation of St. Jerome or initiated by St. Jerome, uh, the Bible translated into to Latin, and it's, a, it's another attempt to refine that, mm. to cleanse it. So it's, it's an important part of that story, but obviously the later you go on, uh, frankly, the less important the texts are, and mm -hmm. the more important everything else is, and the sort of mm -hmm. broader right. cultural yeah. context that they, they they represent. The translations can be very important, though. For example, so we have the um, a Bulgarian Bible, which mm -hmm. I think is is that the er, a, a very early translation. One of the earliest, yeah. Um, another example would be, as you know, um, Saint Jerome translated the Psalms um, a number of occasions. So we have all the versions of his three principal translations and in at least one case in the monastic study bibles we have an example where all three versions are displayed together side by side so there are some i think well i don't know if anyone would want the book if they weren't interested in art but if you were there's there were there's still a lot that's very important just with the text in these books Mm -hmm. Yeah, picking up on the point about translation to, towards the end of the book, then you really start to get the, I suppose, what, what, what's leading towards a, a, a sort of reformed view of, of the Bible. It's still not challenging the authority of mm. the, well, the Latin text, which is, has the authority of the church, but it is seeking to make the text more accessible 
to more people, essentially. So that, in a sense, leads to the sort of Tyndale idea that, mm. you know, that it should speak to the plowboy. Right. I, I just wanted to clarify that point for listeners, because I think it is a question that they have is what, what does this represent, you know, a development in the, you know, in the tradition of the text? Um, and so it's something that they might have in mind and how it leads to um, some questions about what unfolds after uh, Gutenberg. And we'll come back to that. Um, right. I, I wondered if we might sort of contextualize this, you know, where does the book begin and end? And are there are there uh, historical or cultural moments that uh, al allow the the illumination or illustration of the Bible to, you know, come to the fore, you know, maybe there are material causes or uh, cultural changes that that put an emphasis on it. And then why does it uh, why does it uh, drop off? Is it the printing press or are, you know, to, maybe it drops off before then? So I wondered if we might just kind of talk about beginnings and endings a bit. Shall, shall I do that? Yeah, so let, let's start at the beginning, as it were. Uh, so the book kicks off uh, in terms of its examples with uh, a rather amazing example from the sixth, late 6th, early 7th century. Uh, just to give some context, we're in Constantinople, the then capital of the, the Christian world, without question, probably the sort of New York of its of its time in, in many ways as a, a sort of um, the sort of imperial capital. Um, and uh, here we are in not quite the beginnings of early Christian art, but pretty close to it. Uh, so illumination in Christian books comes in really in the, the fifth century. Mm -hmm. So we're just a little bit later than that. And we're, yeah, I mean, sort of in history terms, we're in a British context. We're probably around the time that um, Gregory sends uh, Augustine to, mm -hmm. yeah. to England, you know, just at that turn of the, the two centuries. Uh, mm -hmm. We are in a broader historical perspective. We are somewhere between... Uh, Justinian and Heraclius, the emperor, the Eastern emperors, just before uh, the Islamic uh, developments in the Middle East and the impact that that has on the mm -hmm. Byzantine Empire. So it's, it's quite a it's quite a, a moment in so, many ways. So at the beginning, that you know, is there a shift in a, a kind of reluctance to have more representational art? in a Bible out of fear that it might be considered idolatry or um, or somehow irreverent to include images in a sacred text? Well, or is um, that not, or is that not oh, really operative? It's not operative at this moment. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, so we've already in the fifth century seen uh, very lavishly illustrated manuscripts, the most, famous of which is in the British Library's collections is the so-called Cotton Genesis, yeah. which is a copy of the Book of Genesis, uh, which is more illustrated than any other subsequent copy of that text. So there wasn't a problem with figural mm. narrative uh, illustration from that date. 
what will happen is a bit later than our, our manuscript, and mm. perhaps Kathleen wants to talk about that, because there's a, a difference between West and East at this point. Mm -hmm. So, and I should just mention that we have an introduction um, before we start the example, the 45 examples of, of the Bible, where uh, we, we illustrate these texts, these uh, manuscripts that we're talking about, and we have a fairly extensive discussion of of, of these questions, what's the function of illumination, how it, the practical questions of what's it made, and this whole question of uh, the interpretation of the, of the Second Commandment, as you pointed out. And I, we, we quote in there um, the, the resolution of this issue um, in the 8th century in the East, which is sort of distinguishing between using images to, um, to honor and to show what should be given veneration and the veneration of the images themselves, uh, that crucial distinction which, um, about which discussion uh, carries on today. So that, that's reflected um, uh, in the text and indeed in one of these fantastic Greek psalters, called a marginal psalter, which is um, has very extensive decoration in the margins, as would, you would expect, commenting on the um, on the text pictorially. Um, there are images of this so-called iconoclastic um, conflict and the various figures who played a part in that. And then, um, before we look at some specific examples um, in your book. Uh, where does where does the where does the book end, and is there a transition um, from uh, medieval manuscript illumination um, into something else, or does the tradition continue? Okay, so the the three just to take the three last items. Mm -hmm. um, the first of those ends in uh, well, it, it was made in in fourteen seventy eight. So after the introduction of printing with movable type. So made at Rome, a place where there's a vibrant uh, printing activity going on already. Uh, and it is really, um, it, it, it's very much the, the last throw of, of the dice in, in, in the Western world. Uh, interestingly, it's actually a Greek uh, a copy of the Greek Gospels being produced in Rome uh, after the, the fall of Constantinople and somehow responding to this um, resurgence of interest in uh, Greek, broader Greek culture. Mm. So that's, that's where we are. But in further to the east, in different Christian contexts, uh, manuscript culture is continues uh, and is very vibrant and is very much part of the mainstream because they don't have printing. Uh, so the penultimate item is a copy of the Gospels in Armenian, actually produced in Iran or uh, modern-day uh, Iran. Uh, it is Fahan. Uh, in a context where wealthy Armenian merchants and uh, community, uh, in order to get 
copies of their uh, sacred text have to have manuscript versions. And in order to have a copy that is worthy of, of, of the scriptures, uh, they want to be uh, suitably um, grand, uh, which it is. And then we end up uh, even further away from uh, the West uh, in Ethiopia in the late uh, 17th century. Uh, the Armenian one was in earlier in the, the 17th century uh, at the imperial capital Gondar. Uh, again, uh, no possibility of uh, having a printed version, uh, but actually the artists are emulating something earlier. Mm. Um, so they're but they're very much still part of the vibrant, creative tradition of illumination. It's not just some eccentricity. This is still a vibrant culture. Mm. So uh, at that point, uh, how do we how does the tradition extend down to uh, Ethiopia? How does it um, how how is that trans that tradition and the practice transmitted um, through cultures, are there are there is there evidence of of direct influence, or are they um, are they aware of other examples? Um, how does that work when when you know obviously travel is much more limited, and um, you know the technology doesn't allow for multiple copies. Sure. Well, the Ethiopian book is a very interesting example where you do have uh, essentially a well-established uh, indigenous mm. uh, tradition, but by by this date, you're also getting um, references to uh, probably transmitted through engravings mm. or through printed items, Western printed items. So you are starting to get quite a meld of imagery where some of the imagery looks very purely Ethiopic, mm -hmm. and then others are actually looking very Western. And so you, you have a, quite an interest, it, it's very interesting, but the tradition holds up. It doesn't start to look um, disparate. It's actually absorbing that and reinterpreting it in a very interesting way. I'm actually turning the pages of the book. I know you don't have it in front of you to see it, but it's when Scott uses the term vibrant, it's it is exactly right. There's these brilliant oranges, reds, greens. Again, if you look at it, you think, well, that can't possibly be right, but it is. Um, so this incredibly, I think, to modernize, a very sort of um, powerful image, but yet iconographically, in terms of its subject, it is recognizable. We've reproduced, for example, an image of the nativity, the crucifixion, um, which is the same sort of scenes that um, have, are illustrated really throughout the book and throughout the Christian period, ending with an image of Christ in majesty held by the symbols of the four evangelists, which um, symbols start out in some of the various early, early examples um, in the book of 800 years earlier. Mm. They're, they're really wonderful. The, the four are all full bleed images right in succession. And uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful way to close the book. 
Yeah, well, um, we really wanted to hold, uh, end the book on, on a bang rather than a whimper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, if, you know, we really we wanted to. Well, we wanted something that was really yeah. uh, not just visually strong, but represented a, 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 a tradition of illumination that was yes. still at full tilt. Yes, mm-hmm. the continuation of of the tradition, and just so we've got Christ and Majesty at the end of the world, but probably you, hasn't escaped you as well that on the on the front cover we have John writing. Um, and you can see him writing in Latin, his book, in Principio, in the beginning. And then on the back cover, we have this fabulous, one of my favorite images of an angel locking the door of the open, uh, to the open maw of hell with everybody uh, in this mouth, including kings and um, lots of demons and all kinds of unfortunate. So we really did uh, sort of think about these design details of going from the uh, beginning to the end. Yes, it's that is a very uh, fearsome image on the back it cover. It is, I know. Um, <laughs> you don't want to end up there. <laughs> yes. Which I guess is the point, really. And, and, you know, going back to your question about the function of these images and the, how this, how they enhance and interpret the biblical text, um, they're very powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's yeah. and in the middle of this gaping mouth is there are at least twenty different characters all crammed together, looking extremely uncomfortable and yeah. Uh, yeah. suffering and pain and um, it's it's something you don't you definitely will linger on. Um, um, well, uh, since we're starting to talk about some of the individual examples, I wonder if we can. Uh, maybe cite some examples to talk about, uh, you know, how these are made and, you know, are some of them a single artist? Can we, are we able to say that? Or are they actually made um, collaboratively like or in schools? And in general, how, how can we talk about that? And maybe even thinking of some examples in specific. Why don't I start? Um, and again, we have a... Um, a description in the introduction of all um, different um, ways in which people can collaborate and and the more technical uh, discussion of what materials are used. Um, maybe I could say a little bit about the different types of illustration that um, are included in the book. Oh, perfect. So, mm-hmm. For example, I'm just I turned to the Tiberius Psalter, which was made in Winchester in the 11th century, and it is the most extraordinary line drawing. So it's colored line drawings here. It's not painted. Um, it's a, I suppose we would call it a wash um, with an ink drawing. There's, there's some gold um, in halos and shields and whatnot. And we zoomed right in, for example, on a... Um, the image of a rather small and youthful David killing um, a Goliath who who fills the page. But the details of the face and the the faces and the the clothing are absolutely exquisite. Um, So here, a totally different technique from what is a a similar image um, in other contexts. And I think that's one of the interesting things about flipping through this book is just the enormous variety um, in in technique uh, 
um, that that is seen over over the period, and and maybe maybe Scott wants to say something about individual artists um, in the later period. And as, as you know, um, sometimes we we often don't have signatures; we don't know names. But there are a number of the most famous manuscripts which are named after the books included here. So, for example, the Queen Mary Master, um, who worked on probably one of the most extensively illuminated books ever made, um, which is uh, called the Queen Mary Psalter. Do you want to talk about the different techniques there? Because you've actually got the two in in the one book. Yeah, you? yeah. That, I mean, this is a good example that it has in so the, has a continuous uh, series of, of images that run along the bottom of each page uh, from saints' lives and fighting beasts, and I've got a hunting scene shown here, um, uh, and that's in a similar kind of line drawings and color wash. And then directly above it is a, a much more formal, more sort of visionary view of uh, painted uh, scenes on a on a burnished gold background. So very powerful um, and evocative um, interpretation of the song. So shall I talk talk a little bit about um, single artists, multiple artists, and multiple hands, as it were? Yeah, I think uh, it's because we yeah. we come at it, you know, with this idea. It's a very romantic idea, you know, of the individual artist. But that's yeah. really not at play here. It isn't, no. Um, what, um, well, one must imagine most of these books, uh, and I say, I could make an exception, most of these books as the work of, of, of several hands, mm. uh, and actually, a, you know, a group of people who may not actually be working uh, side by side, so it's not necessarily the mm. the model that people often think about, where they're sort of sitting in a row and passing things along. Uh, there are notable examples where you we believe that you have one person, like the Linda Swan Gospels that uh, Kathleen spoke about earlier, where mm. it seems as though you've got one single scribe artist at work, but most of these volumes, the the, the pages are prepared by one person or many people. The text is written mm. by one person or many people. Uh, and then parts of the illumination are done by different people. And that could be uh, different people doing different parts of the illustrations, or it could be that one person does the, the initials and another person does the figures, or even in some of them that some... You know, one person does part of uh, the illumination. It might be the figures, and the other person does parts of the, the background. Mm. So there are a lot of people uh, at work on, on these. But often, I, rather than in a, a um, rigorously organized framework, often within a much looser framework where people um, are sort of farming things out. There may be one person who's sort of coordinating it. Uh, but they're they're finding different people in possibly the same street or uh, maybe more remote in some cases. You know, it could be the next town or or city, mm. uh, and uh, really forming a sort of loosely connected team 
to uh, make these books. So it is a very, very interesting, and we're more and more getting to understand the different models by which these these books are made. Mm-hmm. And some of them, some of them are commissioned, actually, in cases of uh, you know royalty. Uh, but others are not. They're just part of the practice of the monastic community to reproduce them and to illuminate them for that community. Is that right? I think it, there's very much a change, and this is it becomes quite apparent as you go from the earlier period where it is the case that most books of any kind are made in the monastery, and probably a lot of the illumination is done there too, although there's lots of discussion about traveling lay artists who come around and help. But certainly by the later period, by the period that Scott's just been talking about and sort of as you get toward the second half of the book, this is very much, these are commercial productions. These are people who are professionals. They're written by professional scribes. They're illuminated by groups of professional artists. And absolutely, you're right. The very, very expensive ones um, that can be personalized literally on every page are commissioned as bespoke luxury items. And I think as we get to the period um, after printing, you really see that the people who still want a handmade bespoke um, book um, want them to be as grand as as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you use the word luxury, and I I wonder how often as you're as you were working on this that it seems startling the contrast between the conditions of life then and the kind of you know luxury item that there these individuals are working on. I mean, I I have in my mind you know the 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 the. Uh, uh, Lindisfarne Gospels, and you know the the famous Viking raids in 793, you know that disrupted monastic life there until something like the 11th century. Um, and I just think of the the deep contrast that these are not these don't seem like ideal conditions, um, mm. you know, to be producing these things, and yet it requires such attention and care and um, uh, a refinement of sensibility, and uh, does that ever strike you? You know, in thinking about you know the world in which they lived, that these were uh, really standout objects um, in an otherwise brutal world. I, I think it's important here as well. Something that you touched upon at the beginning: that these mm-hmm. are sacred texts. Mm-hmm. And just going to Linda's farm, I quote a recent, Richard Gameson's recent uh, translation of the colophon or the, the inscription at the end of the book where um, the person who wrote in the English translation is saying why he did it. And um, he, it, he says, that the, 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 reflecting the view that this, that the, um, the scribe wrote this book for God and for St. Cuthbert and for generally for all the holy folk uh, saints who are on the island, that, that the ornamentation, the use of gold and gems and the, the luxury, if you will, of these is to, is to glorify the sacred word and that the, this is, um, is sort of a physical manifest, manifestation of, of the word and therefore the the... Um, 
the the expenditure is entirely appropriate to um, to in, adorn the sacred text. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think also that we um, life was hard, uh, but uh, somewhere like Lindisfarne was not a um, a sort of um, by you know bywater. You know, it, it was a very sophisticated. Mm -hmm center and the art that is represented in in the Lindisfarne Gospels reflects that. So I think mm. um, the sophistication of it shouldn't surprise us. Um, the amount of effort to make it look so amazing uh, shouldn't also surprise us because uh, time, and I think there's this current debate about mm. whether people have enough silence uh, in their lives. Uh, there was heaps of silence um, and there were probably although there were the you know life was was short and there were a lot of threats to life uh, there weren't as many distractions and of course the world wasn't saturated with imagery mm. in, in the way ah, right. that it is mm -hmm. now I, I think there are so there are a lot of lot of differences uh, but these one of the reasons I think that many of the items in the book survived was because they were special. Yes. You, you, the special things have a higher chance of surviving. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, obviously, a huge amount is lost from that period. Uh, but some of the rarest things, I mean, we have an example here at, at the British Library, which is a very modest uh, gospel book almost con exactly contemporary with the Lindisfarne Gospels, but it's a much greater rarity um, because the sort of thing that was in daily use and I suppose less valued didn't survive. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, I wonder if we could pivot and talk a little bit about um, the reception of these Bibles, how were they, how were they read in their time? Uh, who had access to them? Uh, could anyone access them? And, and how did they um, serve as a, uh, as an, a way for individuals who may not have been able to read to sort to engage with the, the biblical story? Is, is that a factor here? Or do, would most people who would have access also be literate? That is one of the reasons that we wanted to, um, uh, well, a, a, a third way in which we wanted to show as much breadth as possible with language, and we've alluded to this a bit before. So there are a number of in, in instances which are quite interesting that, have, that are bi either bilingual with Latin and a vernacular text or entirely in the vernacular, which very much raises the question of uh, or su suggestion that these were designed to be used by a layperson who would not be entirely comfortable with the Latin Bible, even that, though, of course, Latin is going to be, certain passages are going to be very familiar from, um, from, from Mass and, and services. So we, we very much want to explore that um, and 
to suggest in some cases that they're probably so sophisticated that they would be interpreted or read together with your personal chaplain. Um, and that's also suggested by the size in um, many cases. In, in addition to the, the silence that uh, Scott just mentioned, you also have, you don't turn on the TV after dinner, but we do know that you gather around and are read to. So uh, both in, in um, secular texts and, and, and possibly some of these biblical texts as well. So I think the reading was, could be a different activity. Um, and there's um, one particular, uh, going to this point of, of um, things being interpreted for you, we've included in the Hokum Bible picture book, which is, as it suggests, mainly pictures with sort of captions, but again, captions in the vernacular primarily, and even a little bit of um, English in addition to the French. And right at the beginning of it um, is a Dominican pictured um, instructing the artist how to write, uh, because he says this book is going to be shown to um, important people. So there's a sense that their re reading could be a more communal activity than we maybe think of it today. Hmm. Yeah, I, I actually wondered um, in terms of the uh, the the way that the art functions for the reader is that it, mm. it it also serves as a kind of community of interpretation. I mean, so much of our you know, literary criticism now, biblical or textual criticism, you know, focuses on, you know, the written, uh, a written interpretation of, of the Gospels or the biblical story. And what's just so evident here is, is that there is allowed, not just a kind of serious play, but that the interpretation takes its form in the visual arts. And, you know, while maybe that's continued in the 21st century in film or, you know, other um, uh, media, it, it's clear to me that it is a that what you see in the art is a kind of community of interpretation um, that maybe we're less, uh, that seems less obvious to us now because our Bibles are kind of stripped down and bare and they're just the text. Um, are there instances where you see that kind of, uh, that play or that, um, uh, layering of the text with other um, themes or um, uh, images that kind of amplify something going on? Or, um, I mean, it's obvious that in some of the most dramatic moments, like the crucifixion and whatnot, they're, they're very, um, uh, you know, they're very, you know, tangible and visceral, you know, representations often, um, just because of the dominance of the visual for us. But, um, I wondered if you had any thoughts about that, how, how the visual serves as a kind of interpretive act. So uh, one of the most striking examples of this in, in the book, I think, is the so-called Theodore Psalter, uh, made at Constantinople in 1066 at one of the, the most important monastic houses in Eastern Christendom, uh, and made for the abbot. Uh, in fact, we know just about everything that you could possibly want to know about this book, uh, who it was made for, who, who, who wrote it, etc. But it's essentially a copy of the Psalms in Greek, 
Um, but although we have some imagery of, of David and some, uh, if you like, narrative around David, most of the imagery is actually a Christian commentary uh, or a contemporary or near-contemporary commentary on the text. So it uses the Psalms as a springboard to uh, tell the, the audience various things. Kathleen's already alluded to the very important reference to the iconoclastic debate. Uh, Theodore, who was one of the, the principal figures in that debate about the, the value and significance of images in, in Christianity, uh, was an abbot of the that very same monastery and so for for the monks of this and the abbot his successor uh it was a very very important context but repeatedly icons just keep on mm. coming up in in the margins images of of the virgin images of of christ of course this is this isn't illustrating the text of the psalms it's commenting on them uh so you really have um a very, very rich uh, visual commentary in the margins of this book that is relevant in contemporary terms, but also Christianizing yes. a, 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 a Judaic uh, text. The, the other example also of the Psalms, and I think some of the most beautiful and, and moving paintings is a series of, in a number of these examples, it's where a whole series of full-page images, often without any text of the life of Christ, is appended to the beginning of the Psalms. And so reflecting exactly the same point, that you use these images meditatively, that they're to Christianize um, a book of Hebrew, um, initially, uh, uh, pr prayers and songs, and that they provide a layer of interpretation that is in addition to um, or commenting on the, the, the text that's going to follow. Okay. Um, I wonder if you have any, um, is there, are there any other examples that uh, you would like to uh, comment on before we uh, finish up our time here? Um, In particular, this touched on, um, I, I think of the, uh, in terms of our modern day experience, I know that there are there are, occasionally there are we hear about illuminated Bibles being produced. I know in 1998, St. John's Abbey and University commissioned calligrapher uh, Donald Jackson to produce a handwritten, hand illuminated Bible, and that's in central Minnesota. Um, but um, how do these continue to? Uh, so we hear about these things, and I I also uh, one. Bible that I love is by Barry Moser, which is uh, illustrated with his engravings. It's called the Penny Royal Caxton Bible. Um, but uh, you know, how does how do these manuscripts resonate with us today, especially as we think about the ways in which uh, illumination and illustration really has uh, um, gone away, even to the point where we're now stripping out more and more of the apparatus around the biblical text. Um, Yeah. Well, it's essentially a lost art, isn't it? I mean, there are still practitioners of illumination. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I don't think any of them would say they were um, mm. the the true heirs, as it were, of of, of medieval. They tried to do something different. Um, it's uh, I mean the the illumination works in very as, as we've described in 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 various ways. Part of which is to I suppose create a, a, an impact. It's partly to not just impact for impact itself, but it's actually to stress the the text as something which is is sacred, which is perhaps mm -hmm. uh, so it, it, it's sacred within a church setting, uh, within church services, is is the the symbol of of the word of of of, of, of Bible, or it could be in the later period. That it's a symbol of of wealth and status of the owner of that book. So it speaks in quite a num number of ways that probably we we do in different ways now. Mm -hmm. uh, you know that, uh, for example, I mean there in many Christian traditions the the Bible is is still processed. The the physical yeah. entity is still. Um, Central within a within a service, um, but it's usually the ex, you know that it's it's what it contains, or at most what's on the outside. It could be a very opulent cover that does that. Um, but in many traditions, of course, uh, within sort of Protestant or Reformed traditions, it's 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 the words that are are, are most important and their their meaning and significance uh, which means of course that the, a lot of the imagery and the sacrality of it uh, mm. is, is less relevant mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think the one thing that's I'm reminded of as I look through the book is that we've you've talked about time and slowness but but and and with that the 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 appreciation of silence but the way in which the engagement with the text and the sustained effort that's represented by these manuscripts is a kind of, you know, uh, veneration and uh, part of making the scripture sacred. And um, it's a very powerful reminder of, of sort of what we've lost in that sense. Um, uh, yes, I mean, many of the yeah. people that, that, that undertook these, these books you know, they 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 were part of the story, if you like. They saw mm -hmm. themselves as part of the story, and and it was a core part of their uh, religious life that they did this. Mm -hmm. I mean, towards the end, you you you've got people who are essentially just doing it for money, but it's still very much part of their culture. Mm. It's it's still very much, uh, you know, something that they know about and know about on a daily basis. I think also the we haven't really touched on the script, and we have tried to not in in the book to include examples of the text so that it's um, it's clear how the images relate to the text. And of course, one of the very rather practical and maybe more prosaic ways of thinking about it is to help you find your way around a book um, which doesn't have any pagination, which is all written by hand and may have quite a lot of abbreviations and so when you have a large initial that starts a new book of the bible 
or a new major section um, or a full page miniature before each gospel um, that helps you orient where you are and and perhaps in these the modern um, example to which you refer um, where you have a table of contents and a and pagination maybe some of these finding aids are slightly less necessary mm. interesting yes well, I, I certainly wish we had more time to, to talk about these things and the individual uh, manuscripts, um, some of which are available online. Is that right? Uh, are some of these available through uh, the British Library? Can you browse them yeah. online? We, as Scott mentioned at the beginning, we want to make these as available as uh, they can be while obviously preserving them for future generations. So one of the things that we've done is presented a full digital copy that's um, available on our man on our website, it's simply called Digitized Manuscripts, um, and then you type in the in individual manuscript, and this presents complete coverage, literally cover to cover coverage. Um, I'm not sure it's every single manuscript in the book, but the large majority, and at the library we're working to... Um, reach the goal of um, of uh, completing that coverage. Oh, that's amazing! Wow. Yeah. And one of the very um, exciting things is to be able to zoom in uh, very, very close. I mean, you you said that several of these zoom in close, but you can zoom in even closer yeah. on the screen. Uh, so, for those of us whose sight is slightly uh, yeah. less good than it was, it's it's a fantastic. Uh, way and you see things that uh, you know even if you saw it in front of you 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 wouldn't mm -hmm. see yeah it's really a great it's a great tool and um, then there's that's accompanied by um, a full catalog description so that will point readers to a, a bibliography um, and describe elements of of the book, like it's later provenance, who owned it, all, mm -hmm. all of those kind of details. So is that an ongoing project for both yeah, of absolutely. you? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. We're, we're adding to, to that website literally daily. Wow. Okay. Yeah. We've, so we've got a lot, lot to do. You've got a lot to do. So <laughs> we've got very vast collections, but uh, actually one of the very striking things is that over the past five years, we, we have put an amazing amount of this sort of cover to cover online now in a way that uh, you know was sort of unthinkable before. So there's an awful lot of this, uh, these, this, these manuscripts and others like them that are available now and will continue to be, uh, you know, increasingly available well, online. Well, I certainly hope that your book, um, your beautiful book, and uh, your ongoing efforts with the website will lead to a much richer and engaging, um, um, uh, you know, appreciation of these very, very beautiful and reverent manuscripts. And so thank you for your efforts on uh, uh, to do that, but also for your time today to talk with me. Right. Thank you. Appreciate it's it. a pleasure. Yeah. yeah, it was. That concludes my conversation with Scott McKendrick and Kathleen Doyle about their new book, The Art of the Bible. Illuminated Manuscripts from the Medieval World, published by Thames and Hudson. Please join me again to hear about other new books in biblical studies. 
And to learn more about new programs as they are posted, you can follow the channel on Twitter at New Books Bible. As always, thanks for listening.